This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by Katie Balls and James Forsyth. Well, Sir Keir Starmer has done his second reshuffle in a year, but this time he's actually managed to do a reshuffle. Katie, tell us what he's actually achieved. So he's achieved a fair bit. And I think to put it into context, as you just touched on, Isabel, this is the second reshuffle this year. There was a focus group that Matt Chorley was involved with from the Times um, yesterday. And only the glimpses of this reshuffle were coming in. But one of the main takeaways is people saying, why is he doing two in a year? That's a bit odd. Um, But I think to understand why he is, when you go back to that reshuffle after the local elections, almost everything that could go wrong did go wrong because Keir Starmer tried to move Angela Rayner from one of her briefs. Angela Rayner was not having any of it. There ended up being a briefing wall. The whole reshuffle had to just pause while they tried to help broker an agreement. Keir Starmer was not in a strong position because he had decided to do it actually very early on into the local election results. So at the point when Labour probably looked the worst of any point in those results. So after the Hartley pool had gone to the Tories. And I think that it meant that it looked as though it came from a place of weakness. And then once he had finally agreed to Angela Rayner, he had all these other Shadnick cabinet members saying, well, you can't move me, I'm not moving. And the whole thing stalled. So the reshuffle that we saw yesterday, I think was effectively unfinished business for Keir Starmer. I think a lot of the things are things that he wanted to do back then, not everything, obviously, as time goes on, new ideas come to mind. But I think it's almost an extension of that because he wasn't in a position to do it. And the fact he was able to do some quite drastic moves, so bring Yvette Cooper to be Shadow Home Secretary, demoting Ed Miliband, I think you can say, and then also moving Lisa Nandy to um, the levelling up role outside Michael Gove. I, I think that after the Tory reshuffle, where Michael Gove is now in that beefed up role, it's easier to move Lisa Nandy there because it is now being talked up as a really significant department. And Bridget Phillipson getting a promotion to Shadow Education Secretary. I think that the slight dampener on this reshuffle, and I think generally on this reshuffle, if you are on the right of the party, you have fared better than if you're on the left, is the fact that it started very much like the last. Angela Rayner was giving a big speech on ultimately Tory sleaze about Labour's plan to increase standards in public life to the Institute for Government and in the morning round was asked about reports from the Times that there was going to be a reshuffle said that she you know didn't really know anything about it and then in the Q&A again said she hadn't been consulted on it and this led to claims that Angela Rayner's being caught out the leader's office were overshadowing her intervention and while Keir Starmer's team are quite quick to rebut this and lots of Labour sources have ultimately been blaming Rayner's aid and, and the whole operation I don't think what you can't avoid is the fact that they ultimately decided to do the reshuffle on a day when Angela Rayner, the deputy leader, was trying to make a big statement that would lead the news and the reshuffle clearly took that over. So it does uh, point to disharmony, particularly in, in that relationship, even if I think by the end of the day, members of Keir Starmer's team are pretty happy of how it went. James, do you think the Conservatives will be pretty happy with, with how it went or have they now got some shadow front benches who are going to cause some trouble for them? 
I think as Katie said, the early bit of the reshuffle played out slightly chaotically. And I think the Tories had their tails up at that point. But I think by the end of the day, this is clearly a stronger shadow cabinet than what Labour had in place beforehand. I think that, you know, Bridget Phillips and education is an issue for them. I think Lisa Nandy is a very good foil to Michael Gove. And I think she was wasted as shadow foreign secretary. They're in reality, unless Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine or China invades Taiwan, the shadow foreign secretary doesn't get that much airtime. And it seemed very odd to have this person who has this particular I think, understanding of kind of declining towns and put them in charge of international relations. It was it was an odd, odd choice. So I think all of those things are are better. I think Yvette Cooper has clearly been brought there to try and punch the bruise on channel migrants. I think the question for Labour is, what is their actual positioning? And I think, I think the, the kind of challenge for Yvette Cooper is to basically expose how the government can't implement the things it says it wants to implement. But it's always going to be a bit difficult for Labour because they don't actually have a position on what they would do differently. I think you can also see that this is... I think the Ed Miliband point that Katie makes is important because what you see, I think, there is a desire to kind of avoid confusion about who is more important on the economy. Is it Treasury or Bayes? I think if you look at this new lineup, it's quite clear that Rachel Reeves' power as Shadow Chancellor has also been enhanced by all this. And Katie, we also have Wes Streeting now at Health, and he is uh, taking over from John Ashworth, who I think has got a long service medal for, for being in that brief but it's a big promotion for Wes Streeting who was in I think it's fair to say a made-up job of shadow child poverty secretary therefore shadowing no one and he will be shadowing Sajid Javid who is very busy at the moment with the Omicron variant tell us what we know so far about that Yes, so I think it's still a case of wait and see, broadly speaking, on the Omicron variant. You're getting various warnings. You have, for example, Moderna, senior figure there coming out and saying the Moderna vaccine might not work on this variant. It could take months. But again, very much in the might area as more comes together, because you're also hearing reports from South Africa of you know, no hospitalizations. So I think that... The thing that you can focus on is what is the government saying? Today, obviously, these measures they announced on Saturday have finally come into effect. So mandatory face marks in various places. I think what was quite interesting from what Sajid Javid was saying yesterday was when he was pressed by Tory backbenchers, we know are very resistant to these increased restrictions. He pressed the point that if it does turn out and everyone thinks you need about two weeks to work out really what's going on with this variant in terms of vaccine resistance if it does turn out there is no worse than delta they will move very quickly to undo the changes they announced now i think obviously if you follow the logic of that if it turns out it's much worse than delta i think you can logically see a route where you do end up in more restrictions but i think clearly the government does not want to lean too much that way and i think essentially are very much hoping for the best here so you saw yesterday also nicola sturgeon mark drakeford leaders in the devolved administrations writing and trying to actually increase some of these rules and so talking about a day eight test, longer self-isolation for anyone coming into this country from any other country. And also talking about potential extra funds that they might need if, if you do have to go into a lockdown scenario. I think the mean music from ministers is, is we do not want to talk about lockdowns in any way possible. Instead, let's focus on boosters. And still, I think there is a sense that the vaccines what got the UK out of lockdown and it's what's going to keep the UK out of lockdown. So that big ramp up and booster jabs, which we're going to hear more from from the Prime Minister this afternoon. 
James, this does also potentially cause a, a lot of delays to other parts of Sajid Javid's brief. There uh, were supposed to be discussions on, on social care going on in Cabinet this week. Um, there's also the elective recovery plan for the NHS that was supposed to be being published this week. So does this set the NHS back further in terms of its recovery time if we are potentially looking at more hospitalisations, though we obviously don't know that yet. I think one of the things that nearly everyone thinks is that the waiting list will be worse by the end of the winter than it is today. And I mean, the question is, how much worse? And obviously, that is hugely dependent on how much COVID and how much flu there are, whether, you know, to, to, what, to what extent all this stuff happens. And I mean, this is one of the big dangers, I think, is that you see the NHS now, it is in a pretty fragile state. You, know, you look at the amount of times ambulances are waiting to unload patients into hospitals and the like. It wouldn't take a huge increase in COVID hospitalizations, I mean, to put the NHS under real pressure. I think that is one of the things that is concerning Tory backbenchers at the moment, which is, you know, how much slack is there in the system? I think they, I think they think, and rightly so, that politically having to reintroduce restrictions would be politically, would be very, very difficult for the government. I mean, it would cause a lot of trouble with the Tory party, and I think you couldn't be as sure of public compliance as you were the first time round. But obviously, I think the big question is, how do the vaccines fare on this? And we're hearing kind of conflicting things at the moment. The, the boss of Moderna is very pessimistic, thinking that they might well have to update them. Said against that, you've got the South Africans suggesting that the cases they've seen of a disease so far are all um, relatively mild. But, you know, again, it's worth remembering that the people who contacted the disease in South Africa are relatively young. I mean, the oldest person we know to have got the Omicron strain in South Africa is 66. So we'll have to see how kind of 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds fare, I think, before we can make any proper assessment. Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy these podcasts, you might also enjoy my evening blend email. It goes out every day. It's free and it's a roundup and analysis of the day's political events. Just sign up at spectator.co.uk forward slash blend.